If you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to continue with me through the book of Acts, chapter uh, 1. Our verses for today will be in uh, verses 6 through verse 11. And the subtitle is uh, the uh, church that is, well, to be the church is a subtitle. And the, if I was to put a working title on this sermon, it would be a framework for missions. A framework for missions. And as, as I mentioned last week, I hope and pray that you would think of this movement through the book of Acts uh, as an adventure. I like reading the Bible, thinking of it as being on an adventure, and the Lord is continually speaking and leading along the way. There should be questions that should surface through the sermon and through your thinking through the text with me. Questions such as, how does this text glorify Jesus. And I want you as the congregants, those listening in, to hold me accountable. Did you hear Pastor Larry today glorify Jesus through the text? How does this text glorify Jesus? How does the text before us show the sinfulness of humanity and at the same time showing the righteousness of Christ? How does this text show those, those elements? God's Word is alive, and it is active. And it will showcase your own fallacies. It will showcase where you fall short as it lifts up Jesus. It will also show you where you fall short. It is alive, it is active, and it is working. There is no other book of antiquity that can boast that it is alive and working in our lives. And so, with your Bibles in hand, I hope you brought your Bible with you uh, today. If not, there are some in the pew, and we've got the words on the, over, on the overhead for you to read today. Uh, it is our responsibility to have a copy of God's Word with us. And so, uh, whether or not you're reading or whether or not you see it on the screen. Uh, so, let's stand together as we read God's Word. Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11, entitled, A Framework for Missions. In verse 6 is where we begin. The Bible tells us through the evangelist Luke. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, What well, is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let us pray over the reading of this word. Father, we pray today as you have given a word, you have given a message for us. I pray, Lord, as we hear that message, we will take it to heart, God. Let us not in our stubbornness say that word is not for me today. It hasn't spoken to me. But let us all say today, how 
can I be changed by this word? How can I be transformed? God, you're speaking to me today. God, you're speaking to me in this way, and I own it. I take ownership. You're talking to me today, Lord, through your word. So, Father, I pray that you will, you will do a good work here today as you do every time your word is opened, every time your word is rightfully divided. And we pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I want to reiterate this point to you, that um, before we press on into the text, Luke is the evangelist, and we call him the evangelist writer, meaning he wrote the gospel account that bears his name. He wrote the book of Acts as a continuation. We would say that this is, this is the sequel. This is Luke part two. He's writing to Jewish believers concerning the history of the early church, what transpired or what happened in the early church, and the Acts of the Apostles is an English rendering, the title that we have ascribed to this book. It is the actions of the, uh, of the apostles. So think about it like this. Um, a good movie might have certain acts within it. A play would have certain acts in it. You might know of a, of a song or something that might have four parts in it, and it's like 22 minutes long and four... Four parts in it. So there's four acts in a particular uh, a movement or, or a work. And so Acts has that same scenario, that same uh, working. It's the Acts of the Apostles, and it is seen in four different ways. It is seen through the Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea. It was actually uh, uh, together, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. That is your Acts of the Apostles, the movement within this book. The Gospel of Luke, we are given this detailed first-hand account, if you will, uh, eyewitness account of the birth of Jesus, the death and his resurrection. We are given details about his life. And then the book of Acts is how Jesus affected the early church and how the kingdom of God grew throughout the known world. This is what God was doing in this, in this gospel explosion, if you will call it that. By the end of the book, we find it's tapping on the shoulder of the outermost parts of the world. And this is where we are going, okay? Jesus left the command in Luke 24 and verse 49 as it reads, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Meaning, don't go out and don't try to tell of the kingdom of God in your own power because in your own power you will fail. If there is one thing that I have learned with my walk with Christ, it is when I try to do things in my own power and in my own will, I always fail. The disciples met together in anticipation for this promise to be fulfilled. And even in the first verses of the book of Acts that we read last week, there is an applicable point to the church. And this is what I believe this applicable point is. Is that believe and trust in the word of God. Amen. Believe and trust in the Word of God and trust that He will see it through. And trust that He will see it through. Ups and downs, high points, low points, through persecution and times of, of joy and happiness, the Lord will see you through until His work is finished. Now, I don't know if anyone in here still uses a paper map. I don't know the last time I was looking for a destination and I said, hey, pull out the map and let's see if we can find out where we're going. 
Most of us today will use our GPS or our phones, and most any thorough map has a legend on that map. Even your GPS will have a legend on that map of, 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 of certain portions on that particular app. will have um, little things on it that we call a legend. They are uh, formalized shapes upon a, upon a map. They are symbols. They are colors. It will label features such as mountains and highways and, and cities. And sometimes there'll be, um, there will be uh, an explanation of what these symbols might mean. And it might also might have a scale that would help you determine the mileage or the distance of that mileage on that particular legend. Now, I want you to think about the book of Acts. As I, I've already talked about the outline of it being Acts chapter 1. The legend also for the book of Acts is chapter 1 and verse 8. But I also want us to look at some of the building blocks of this book. Now, you've noticed that the sermon is entitled, A Framework for Missions. Think of the most beautiful picture in your mind right now. Most every beautiful picture, at least in modern art, some way, shape, or form has a frame around that beautiful picture. Now, the beautiful picture and the painting therein this morning is the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how are we as his disciples to take this beautiful picture out into the world? And upon this beautiful picture, there is a frame that surrounds this beautiful picture. So I want to talk about two elements of this framework this morning. In this sermon, a framework for missions, the first portion or the first step, the first element of this framework is that of unity. A missional framework is unity. Before we dive into these first couple of verses, verse 6 and 7, I want to ask you a question, an upfront question. I want you to think about it, okay? Think about it, write it down if you want, take it home, meditate upon it. I want you to think about it, okay? Does it make much sense for a church, we would say a Bible-believing church, a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, um, Orthodox-believing church, does it make sense for a church who is in disunity and disarray to be sending out missionaries? I would suspect that churches are in disarray and are dysfunctional are probably not sending out missionaries anyway. And if they are, many times they are ill-equipped to send them out. What is the reason behind this? The reason being is if they cannot clean up their own yard, what makes them think that they can help people clean up theirs? And so the first building block the first premise in the world of missions is that of unity. Can they look at the missionary who is at their doorstep? By the way, I mentioned this last week. We're all missionaries, every one of us. Can they look at the missionary on their doorstep from Piney Grove Baptist Church? You might be doing some outreach. You knock on the door. Can they say that the missionary represents a church that is in unity, that they love one another? They will know us by our love for one another, our unity one with another. Will they be able to say, well, that church down there seems to be functional and they seem to love one, one another? Look at what he says in verse 6. Now, I didn't, say perf I didn't say perfection. We're not perfect yet. But unified in the same purpose, the same vision, 
The same goes. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 6. Notice this first phrase. And when they had what? Come together. They asked him. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And now you must know that the disciples had obeyed the Lord, as we saw in Luke 24. They obeyed the Lord Jesus. They came together in anticipation, expecting the Lord to do a wonderful work. You'll notice at Christmas time, I said that one of the things that I think that we have missed about the Advent is the wonder of what God did. So many years ago with the incarnation, the wonder and the awe. Well, maybe for us today, we have lost this sense of anticipation. That God is, God is doing something wonderful. And to anticipate that, that God is up to something good. That God is working in his, in his church. And the disciples kind of set a precedence. They, were, they, they knew the Lord's promise. They come together as he, as he commanded. Notice this phraseology at the beginning of verse 6. They had come together. And they were as it is in one accord. Now you know that old joke, don't you? What car did the disciples drive? What car was it the disciples drove? A Honda. Why? Because they were all in one accord. Now you don't have to laugh at that. I know it's not funny. But here, I, I was reading this on a forum the other day, and I thought this was kind of cute. So I apologize uh, before I read this to you, okay? I apologize beforehand. So they asked the same question, setting up this joke. What car did the apostles drive? And a person responded, a Prius, because they are holier than thou. So if you drive a Prius, I apologize. That was just the, the, the joke. Now, regardless, regardless, funny joke or not, you might think it was dry and, and, and archaic and maybe a dad joke, okay? Regardless, you get the point, there was unity. They were, they were gathered together and anticipating God to bring about his, his promises. One thing about being together and on the same page as, as people of Jesus is that when we're together and in the same mind, we, we seek clarity through the scriptures. We seek to have clarity of what God said, and they did that. They wanted clarity, even though they misunderstood what it meant for Jesus, his work and ministry as Messiah. Even though they misunderstood, they asked him, they said, Lord, what will you do? Uh, when, when will you restore this, the kingdom to Israel? And that's a, it's a good question, but it's a little bit slanted. It's a little bit out of the understanding of what Jesus was doing in history. It's a good question. It's what they, they, when they realize that the kingdom is so much bigger than just Israel. It is so much bigger than the kingdom returning to Israel. They were still under the impression that Jesus Messiah was going to overthrow Rome. They had been taught this their whole lives, that the expected anointed one was going to come in and alleviate this political oppression from Rome. They still had part of that in their DNA. And Jesus will teach them, no, it is bigger than just your immediate context. It is bigger than just Israel. And so, he will address this in a moment as he sets up the second part of this missional framework. They misread the views and were taught wrongly about the Messianic kingdom. After the resurrection, they began to see some things clearly. And as they were looking for this renewal in the kingdom of Israel, you'll notice what Jesus did. Jesus did not say, get behind me, you, 
workers of Satan. He didn't reprimand them. He didn't throw them under the bus, so, so to speak. He did not oppose them on this point. Rather, Jesus did what he had always done with his disciples. He used this opportunity to teach them and to further instruction on the kingdom of God. Look, look at how Jesus answered. He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by whose authority? His own authority. If you have uh, been alive for the past, let's say, 50 years, or have uh, been plugged into church history the last 50 years, even the last 20 years, end-time events, uh, also known as eschatology or prophecy, has been a reoccurring topic. I know, I know churches today that, will, that if you want to be a member of that church, you have to agree with a certain timeline on the return of the Lord. And so there are churches that are set up with end times as kind of like their primary teaching. People today will, will want to know, and they ask this question, is the return of Jesus soon? Hey, I hope it is. But is that the question that we must be asking? Is the return of Jesus soon? But do you know what our response should be each and every time? Well, I don't know. But here's the response I think Jesus gives. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Lord has fixed by his own authority. I don't know. I grew up in that whole atmosphere, that whole time when people were saying, well, Jesus is going to return on this year. Next year is going to be the, the year when Jesus returns. What did Jesus say? It's not for you to know. When people start charting this prophetic timeline of the return of Jesus, it is almost like they have backtracked through hundreds of years of history and are standing at this rudimentary place with the disciples asking the same questions as if to say, haven't you learned anything? Now, I believe we ought to study end-time events and those type things, but when we start charting timelines and trying to say Jesus is going to return, we're like standing right there with the apostles asking this very rudimentary question that we should have learned from 2,000 years ago. It is not for us to know when Jesus is returning. Why? Because there's work to do. There's still work to do, and... We must be like the disciples, at least at this point, unified in our purpose. He tells them in, in general that the time of these great events of God's kingdom was not to be understood by them. And the choice of the words that Jesus uses in the Greek is, is fascinating to me. Uh, he uses this, the Greek word for time in, in, a, different, in a different aspects. The, the, Jesus uses these, these two words, times and seasons. And Jesus uses it in this way, as to say there are periods of time and points in time, a particular point in time and a particular period of time. What is Jesus saying? Do not be consumed when the Lord will restore the order of all things in this time or in the future. Because it is not for you to know. In this time, today, or in the Days of the future. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I would not be upset if Jesus returned right now. I would not be upset in any way, shape, or form, but it is not for us to know the times or the seasons or the periods or points in time because we have work to do. 
it's, e it's interesting to me how eager some people have been in fixing certain dates about the second coming of Christ. And he said, not, no man knows the day. No man knows the time. No man knows the times or seasons. For the apostles, it was the messianic political kingdom. For Christ followers today, it is, what is when is the great day of the Lord happening? Somebody might say, when is the rapture going to happen? If you hold to that certain uh, teaching in end-time events, is, uh, it's not for you to know, Jesus says. So what he does tell us is stick together, stick together, be of the same mind, be on the same page, love one another, and then point the world to Jesus. That's our job. That's what we do. That's our job as Christ followers. Point people to Christ. See, church people get so caught up sometimes in, in things that have little to no significance for church growth. What would it benefit me at all to know if Jesus was coming May 7th, 2023? That's my birthday. It would be a great birthday present. But hey, what would it benefit me at all to know when the Lord would return? The world is watching in the sense of unification the world is watching us to find some footing to be able to throw stones. You know that, right? To be able to cast some stones at the church. And they might see a church that is in disarray. And the world is watching to find some footing of, of stoning, to throw stones at the church in, in order to justify their disassociation. As to say, see, they can't even get along. They can't even agree. Why would I ever go and sit under the preaching in a church where they can't even get along? But there is coming a day when, when there will be a clear demarcation of those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Jesus. And so, we must hold the mantle of Christ high. John Wesley was uh, known more prominently, you may have heard the name, John Wesley, he was a charter, a charter of the Methodist movement, chartered of the Methodist church. He rode close to, get this, he rode close to 250,000 miles on horseback during the mid-1700s. He was what you would call a circuit rider, and he would go around different places evangelizing and telling of the goodness of, of the Lord Jesus. And over the many miles as this circuit rider he began to be concerned about what he would call the rise of denominations within the church. And I think that he has some grounding to talk about denominations since he is one of the founders of the Methodist movement. Wesley tells of a dream that he had had. He had gone, in his dream, he had gone to hell and gone to heaven. Now, physically, we would say Wesley, it was probably just a dream. But in this case, in this dream that he had, he went down to hell and he was ushered into the gates of hell itself. And there he asked this question. He said, are there any Presbyterians here? And the response was, yes. Are there any Baptists here, Southern free will, independent otherwise, reformed? Yes. Are there any Episcopalians here? Yes. Are there any Anglicans here? Are there any Methodists here? And each time the answer was yes. And as you can imagine, 
John Wesley was distressed about this. Wow, there's, there's people from these denominations in, in hell. And then he was ushered into the gates of heaven. And there he began to ask the same question. Are there any Baptists here? Yeah, uh, are there any Baptists? Are there any Methodists? Are there any Episcopalians? Are there any Anglicans? Are there any uh, Seventh-day Adventists? Are there any other type of denominations that you can think of? And the answer was no. And Wesley was like, no? But who is inside? And the answer came back, well, there are only Christians here. There is only followers of Christ here. My friends, even though by God's grace there are levels of denominations on earth, the Lord Jesus, denominations or not, has called us to be unified together. Ephesians 4 and verse 5 says, There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. What that means for us is the same that it did for the disciples. Come together in unity, seek all answers from the Lord, and to work until He comes. Not only do we need unification and unity as a framework for missions, we also need to be enabled by the Holy Spirit of God. We also need to be empowered by the Spirit. Second portion of this framework is to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Notice the first portion of this outline, which is the legend, which is the map, which is the outline for us in the book of Acts. It is the enablement by the Holy Spirit of God. This first phrase that you find in verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's the prerequisite for every single believer who has ever named the name of Jesus, who has been reborn. You must do everything in the power of the Spirit of God. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, there is no man-made formula for missions. There's nothing that I can concoct as a pastor strategically for missions that will ever outdo the work of the Holy Spirit of God. There's nothing that I can do and articulate in my own power and in my own strength to say, if you do this, people will come to church. That's why there are so many churches today that are trying to be, quote-unquote, relevant, and they are introducing so many things within the, within the church that if the Lord Jesus was to walk into this church, he would probably be thrown over some tables. And we have tried to introduce things in the church that's kind of coaxed people in. And all those things fail unless we do so in the power of God. If you have been following any statistics in church life, you'll notice there, there's decline or plateauing. You will notice that there has been a gradual decline of what they call cultural Christianity. People who also have just uh, became you know, disconnected to the local church. Some, some of these are believers. The church isn't going to reach their neighbor. They're not going to reach the community. They don't do so in the power of God. Jesus is not going to grow that community. He's not going to grow that church. If we do so in our own power. If any local body is going to properly build the church, then we must see missions through this lens. So what does he do first? First, he establishes the work of, of salvation as an event 
that belongs to God. He is the author and he is the finisher of salvation. It is through his power and through his will. He is the catalyst for salvation. We are just the messengers. So notice the next segment in this verse. He says, you will be my witnesses. What is interesting about this word witnesses is that it can also be translated as martyr. So is Jesus saying that we would be his martyrs? We would be martyrs for him, which means that we'll lose our life for his sake. And in some way, we do. This word occurs in the book of Acts 29 different times. And it carries the notion that you must be willing to lay your life down for the gospel of Jesus. Does that mean that you're going to lose your life for Jesus tomorrow? I don't know. Could it come to that? Maybe. But you should be willing to be my witness. You should be willing to lay down your life, everything that is part of your life, lay it down for the cause of the gospel of Jesus. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, he said this, We hear a great deal these days about soul winning, and the emphasis is a good one. It's good to emphasize on soul winning, even though we don't do the soul winning. That's the work of God. However, while some of God's people have a calling to evangelism, some are called to evangelism, all of God's people are expected to be witnesses and tell the lost about the Savior. Not every Christian can bring a sinner to a place of faith and decision, but every Christian can bear faithful witness to the Savior. In the words of Solomon in Proverbs 14, 25, he says, a truthful witness... A truthful witness saves lives. I want to be a truthful witness. I want to know enough about Jesus to be able to tell my, my neighbors and people around me. And if it calls one day for me to lay my life down, physically lay my life, sure. But to follow Jesus means that we lay our life down anyway. The Lord Jesus was about to ascend to the Father and he assembled his disciples together, teaching them and giving them their final direction before he left. And the Bible says in verse 2 that he commanded through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. He gave these commands to them. These men would struggle and, and would have trouble and many of them would lose their lives for the sake of Christ. But the Lord chose them for this gospel initiative. He spent 40 years ensuring that these men knew, or 40 days ensuring that these men knew without a doubt that this was the risen Lord. And he demonstrated that there was much work to be done. And here, they thought God's plan ended at the crucifixion. Now they understood that it was just the beginning. So he instructed them, stay in Jerusalem, wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, you will be baptized with water by John in a few days. The Holy Spirit will be gifted to you. And right before Jesus ascended, he gave them this geographical and topographical framework for the gospel. That there must be unity. And as there is unity, there also must be an empowerment by the Holy Spirit of God. God must unify us and also give us the power to go out, and not in particular order. Okay. So right before Jesus ascended, 
He gave them this framework. And if Piney Grove is going to be wise and obedient to the Lord, this is one of those first places to be obedient to Jesus, to be active in mission here and around. The beauty of it is this, that God has not left you alone on this journey because you have received power if you have been born again. The Spirit of God dwells within you. It leads you, guides you, directs you. But Jesus instructs them to wait and have patience on God because he knows if they are to go out, that God in their own power and in their own zeal that they will ultimately fail. You will too. They were one time cowards. They were one time God deniers. They were dull-witted. They were without help. I can identify. I remember when I was asked about God before I knew the Lord Jesus and I cowered away from anything about the Lord and but now we have no excuse. You say, well, I'm too frightened, preacher, to go. Then get self out of the way. Be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Be led by God. He will empower you. The kingdom of Christ will be built upon the proclamation of the gospel. Now, I try not many times to use my immediate family as a sermon illustration. <laughs> and I only mention this in passing, but many of you know that there will be a wedding in a few days. And I have heard some things stressed from my son that he wants to have a Piney Grove covered dish reception. And my first thought was this, yeah, he come from a Baptist preacher's home. And again, I say that in passing to make this illustration. Think about the day of preparation. Those covered dishes for that day. That is really the illustration that I want to make through this. I imagine many of the ladies and maybe even the men will, will be cooking that day to help us out. To help Noah out. They would watch the stove carefully. Might even put on a bottle, uh, a pot of water to boil. Might even be boiling some cabbage or some collards or something. Make sure you put the fat back in there. And you might put that pot of water on that stove and turn it on high and, and turn your back on that water. And before you know it, that water is running over and it hits the eye of that stove and you hear this huge sizzle come out from the water hitting that hot stove and the overflow of that water produced a sound that made you turn around number one you probably thought you're going to burn the house down secondly you thought well man i got to turn this down before i scorch these these collards or i evaporate this water out of this pot he said well preacher what does that have to do with anything that you just read from acts because i want my witness for jesus to be like that. And imagine using a, a pot of water overflowing on a stove as an illustration. And I want my witness to be like that, that the power of the Holy Spirit is so evident in my life. I don't have to wear a Christian t-shirt that says, I follow Jesus. 
I don't have to do that. That the work of the Holy Spirit is so evident in my life and in my witness that it overflows and that I can't help but tell the story of Jesus and the gospel. That in a nutshell is the book of Acts. That in a nutshell is in the book of Acts. This overflowing of the movement of the Spirit of God and it gets people's attention. The overflow of the work through the Spirit of God is so prominent that it overflows onto everything else. It can't help but spilling over in my family. It can't help but spilling over in ministry. It can't help spilling over in my recreational activities, in, in the things that I like to do, in my hobbies. It, it, it just overflows onto everything else in my life. The overflow of my faith can't help but to grab the attention of someone who will hear me and hear the message that I have to share of Jesus and his wonderful grace and mercy. Now, these ending verses, I'm going to read these through. Verse 9, it says, And when Jesus, he said these things, they were looking on, the, the apostles and the disciples who were there, they were, they were looking on, and Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their, of their sight. And the Bible reminds us that they were all looking on and kept looking. That's what I love about the language used. They kept looking, they kept gazing. They didn't turn away and look and he was gone. They were looking to heaven and he, and, and he, was, he ascended. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This same Jesus who is taking up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And it's so interesting in, in, in chapter uh, 1 verse 10, that uh, as they were gazing, there was two men. And these two men, and these two angels were at the, the scene of the, resu the resurrection. What did they say? Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? And here they say, why are you gazing up into heaven? They understood what Jesus was teaching. Why are you wasting your time looking up into heaven? Go, as he said to go, to the ends of the earth. Why do you stand here looking into heaven, twiddling your thumbs? Now go to your Jerusalem, your Samaria, your Judea, into the earth. This same Jesus who went up is going to return in likewise fashion. He will return in his own power, in his own authority. There will not be a prophetic calendar where Jesus will say, well... It looked like Jack Van Impey here said, I'm supposed to return this day, so let me hold that. Let me do that. He will come in his own sovereignty and his own power and his own, and his own will. Listen, this will be my prayer for you, and then we'll move upon the communion table. I want the work of the Spirit of God in my life so prominent that it overflows onto everything else in my life. But listen... If we are to be missional, missional-minded people and a missional-minded church, I think this sets us the framework to go. Our Jerusalem might be our next-door neighbor. It might be our, our uh, Judea or Samaria might be in the next county over. The ends of the earth might be in the next state over. Or it might be somewhere in, in, the, you know, in the jungle somewhere. The Lord knows where our heart, uh, where the Lord will lead us in missions. And so, so it might be those places for you, but there must be unity amongst his people, and we must understand that we can't do these things no matter how much that we strategize, no matter how many programs that we have, 
we must do so understanding that it is all by the power of God himself in our lives. We can't do any work void of the Spirit of God in our lives. So I'll ask you if you will, think upon those things. Even as we approach the communion table, Lord, overflow in my life. Use me in this great way. Use me in a way where everything in my life will reflect Jesus and it can't help but overflowing onto everything else. Would you pray with me?